Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is the archive readings of critics, of fans, and of myself, including some shape of the show material stuff that, uh, without giving away spoilers, talks about the general structure of the series, maybe what parts are better than others, and uh, also uh, some speculation from fans back in 1990 that, again, you know, they didn't know what was coming, so it's just speculation, but some people, uh, if you're watching this for the first time, like to just uh, play it safe and not even hear people's uh, guesses of what might happen, so there'll be a warning before that part of the show. And then at the very end, I will play the first minute of the next episode. Yesterday, if you listened to my character episode on the earlier end, you may have missed something. I went back and added, so I'll mention it now. You can check it out again or even look at the Illustrated Companion where I added this component as well. I'd forgotten to include it in the original lineup. It was the characters who hadn't been seen for four or more episodes. So characters who had disappeared from the story up to this point of the previous episode. I'm going to continue doing that uh, from now on, but this was a particularly important one because so many characters are in the pilot that we haven't seen since. So check that out. Check that out in the companion and the podcast. Uh, sorry for the oversight, and it'll be in them from now on. So with that, let's begin the archive exploration of Season 1, Episode 6. As the anniversary of the fall of Saigon preoccupied hard news coverage at this moment, Twin Peaks continued to delight the commentariat. Enthusiastic hype all over the media proliferated as TV hit its sweeps period. Rarely have critics and journalists been as genuinely excited about something the network hoped they would promote. And if the show was not quite the popular success ABC might have hoped for, the audience it did click with had a disproportionate voice in media, so the show punched above its weight. One dissenting gripe came from Ed Siegel in the Boston Globe. It was published on May 8, 1990. It's called The Season's Real Peak. While Twin Peaks has slipped into parody, Shannon's Deal keeps delivering the goods. And Shannon's Deal was another show by a film director, in this case, John Sayles. Also ran into, praised by critics, but ran into trouble. He was getting critical of Twin Peaks, so this author wrote, No one was more enthusiastic than I at the two-hour pilot and the first regular episode of Twin Peaks. And I'm sure I'll be in front of the television set on Thursday nights. That it was also perversely humorous was a secondary virtue. Now it is the program's only virtue. He also says it takes a David Byrne, a Salman Rushdie, or Federico Fellini or Salvador Dali to make the details resonate and convince you that there's something going on that also describes the world outside the dream. Or it takes a lynch of the Twin Peaks pilot. So he's already contrasting this third or fourth episode at this point with the heights that the pilot reached. So just remember this, you know, Twin Peaks is going to go through many points without getting spoilery at all, where people say this show isn't what it used to be. But they were saying that from the very beginning, from the very early episodes. It's a constant pattern. Elsewhere, of course, most writers were still, uh, if at times skeptical, mostly enthusiastic. In the LA Times, continuing well into the second season, one commentator would drive much of the discourse on Twin Peaks, Howard Rosenberg. Here's what he wrote a week after this episode aired, on May 10th, 1990. The piece is called, It's Confusing, but the plot twists double the fun. And he says, What I love best about Twin Peaks is that I have absolutely no idea what it's about or what it means. However, I do have a strong suspicion what it's about and what it means. Nothing. But watching nothing has never been as much fun. 
This is not your ordinary run-of-the-mill variety nothing. This is nothing with wit, eroticism, and style. A sort of Ingmar Bergman meets primetime, fraught with seemingly meaningless symbolism and oddball characters whose lives interweave cryptically. Airing at 9 p.m. Thursdays on channels 7, 3, 10, and 42, Twin Peaks is the series that everyone is not talking about, but everyone in the media seems anxious to write about, and write about with unrestrained hyperbole. Twin Peaks fever is sweeping the land, booms Newsweek. And exactly what land might that be? Come on. Someone has been spending too much time with a log lady, who carries a log. If Twin Peaks mania were as widespread as Newsweek seems to believe, ABC would not be undecided about renewing it for next season. In last week's National Nielsen's, Twin Peaks ranked only 44th, barely in the top half of the ratings for primetime. If Twin Peaks does survive past its initial mini-season, and we Twin Peaks maniacs have fingers crossed, then it will do so as a cult series whose relatively small audience is sufficiently young and upscale to excite the advertisers that excite ABC. So Twin Peaks is not for everyone. Perhaps its viewers someday will hold conventions where they will sit around and speak obtusely to each other. Hmm, imagine that. On the Usenet message boards of May 1990, there were a couple fan commentaries after this episode aired. One is from Paul Raveling, posted on May 4th, 1990. And he writes, Here's some feedback from my last call a couple nights ago. Would have posted sooner, but I was out of town briefly. And by the way, he's relaying a message from Scott Frost, who is Mark Frost's brother, and uh, was sort of close to the production. Paul continues, If you would like to write to ABC, especially to express support for Twin Peaks, he suggested writing directly to the top. ABC's president is Bob Iger, 2040 Avenue of the Stars, Century City, California, 90067. Keep that in mind, listeners, if you want to write for uh, more Twin Peaks. Of course, now he's the head of Disney. He suggests that you definitely do not put any mention of Twin Peaks on a letter's envelope. If they see that, they forward the mail to Twin Peaks folks and don't read it themselves. Some quick answers to small questions. 1. The rumor that ABC has already renewed Peaks for 20 episodes or any other number is false. 2. The rumor that anyone else has committed to picking up Twin Peaks if ABC drops it is false. 3. They firmly believe, though, that ABC will continue it. They propose to do 26 episodes for next season. 4. They're temporarily more or less out of touch with David Lynch, who's doing post-production work on his new film, Wild at Heart, near San Francisco. 5. Scott Frost has shown some of the alt.tv.twinpeaks messages that I've forwarded to Mark Frost. It seems Mark already knew the news group existed, but probably hadn't seen any of the messages on it. Mark is taking some time off and is in New Orleans right now. I believe he'll be back by the end of the next week, and perhaps he'll offer some comments on our Usenet discussion then. I'd expect most of the people involved with the show to be talking, taking as much time off as they can in May. If the expected renewal for next season comes through, they'll be busting a gut from June through next March. A footnote about the Frost family in Twin Peaks. Warren, Dr. Hayward, is the father of the other two, and has had a long career in acting. Most of his acting has been on the stage, but perhaps some may remember him from the film version of Slaughterhouse-Five. Mark, I trust everyone knows about Mark, Scott is working on production, probably has a title of production assistant or something similar. Next season will also be a writer, with responsibility for a to-be-determined number of episodes. Anyone who's had the misfortune of writing MIL specifications knows this one well. By the way, Scott does a walk-on bit in episode Pilot Plus 5. His comments about that was that it'll show why some people are paid to act and others aren't. 
I haven't talked to the other Frost, but I can testify that Scott is a bright guy with a good sense of humor. Tom Neff, 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 like I guess uh, Neff from uh, Double Indemnity, Walter Neff, I think, keep that name in mind, uh, posted on May 9th, 1990. Hey, can any of our trivia buffs tell us where that saw grinding sequence in the opening credits was filmed? Also, if you think this isn't a yuppie fad, I was walking home from the church last night, and these three, quote, suits strolled by on their way to some UES meat market watering hole or other, overheard them saying, can you believe what I did last week? Forgot to tape Twin Peaks. And the other two go, damn, you idiot. So he says, well, I, I did watch it, though. And on into the night. Seniors may be tuning out, but 30-somethings are glued to the set. And I'm going to save uh, some more of that comment. It involves speculation. Among fans today, I think this episode uh, tends to be underrated, uh, personally. I've I've noticed a sense that it represents a bit of a lull after the high watermarks of the Red Room and Laura's funeral with no major events and a quiet, low-key mood. But this isn't my read at all. I think uh, at one point this was actually my favorite non-Lynch episode of the season, and it really cranks up the investigation. I think this is where the first season really starts to streamline its disparate threads into like a few small investigative plots. Small, not small, but... Uh, a few that are like really focused, each with their own unique flavor and purpose. Here are some non-spoiler pieces that I've written in years past. I'm going to share a few excerpts. In 2008, for my episode guide, I wrote, Hunter shots convey the sense of being chosen because they're interesting, rather than to simply provide information. He uses lengthy takes which don't call attention to their duration because he's moving the camera and the actors around, manipulating the space in a way both efficient and intriguing. Hunter is also particularly fond of telephoto shots, which hold one actor in foreground close-up, with another standing in the background, out of focus. Sometimes he'll rack focus, shifting the sharpness between the two figures. In one impressive shot, he holds both Ben in extreme close-up near the lens, and Audrey standing full figure on the steps behind him, in focus. If you look closely, you can see the area around Ben's head is soft. Either it's a composite shot, or it uses some kind of lens which was able to split the focus between the two sides. And as an aside, uh, cutting back in me now in the present, I do know now that was a, dio a split diopter lens, so it is a, a special technical uh, instrument that can take that kind of shot. Okay, back to the review I wrote at the time. All this technique, along with the relaxed performances and an intriguing teleplay, contribute to the sense that the mystery is deepening. The world of Twin Peaks is growing richer and that the series is going to work as an ongoing show, not just a sequence of dazzling and surprising set pieces. As I watched Twin Peaks for the first time a couple months ago, this was the episode that really drew me in. The Lynch ones were great, but they mostly just made me want to see what brilliant Cooey would come up with next. The one-armed man doesn't have an overarching storyline. The closest it comes is with the investigation and discovery of the mysterious one-armed man, who turns out to be a harmless shoe salesman. But it does the best job so far of creating and sustaining a mood, which is offbeat enough to draw you in, but comfortable enough to relax in. There are distinctive sounds, the woodpecker in the motel parking lot, and music. Source music is often playing, be it Muzak in the vet's office or an evocative song in the diner, which add to the lived-in ambiance that Hunter concocts. In 2015, I left some comments on Dugpa as I was just re-watching random episodes. This is after finishing my video series, so it was nice to kind of return to an episodic view rather than an overarching overview. Uh, the full piece for this, uh, for the, 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 of the, the full comment that I wrote is actually a little bit more specific about the shape of the series than I remembered. So when I link it in the show notes, it'll be among the semi-spoiler pieces, but I'm going to read a totally non-spoiler part here, excising anything that hints where the show might go. So keep listening if you're a new viewer. 
I've heard a lot of people remark that it feels like a filler episode, marking time between the dramatic first arc, leading up to Laura's funeral in which Cooper gets to know the town, and the second, in which Laura, in the ground, the individual investigations and storylines hit full blast, and we zoom toward the season's finish. I wouldn't say that it's filler. To me, it belongs to the second arc pretty tightly. But even so, that quieter quality is something I kind of like about it. There's a nice sense of relaxation in which we're able to sink into Twin Peaks' world while slowly moving forward into the mystery, instead of just gazing at it impenetrably. Although that can be fun too. But by the end of episode 3, I always feel this itch of, come on, let's start looking for clues, which is of course what they're going for with all the buildup of grief, guilt, and malaise. And finally in 2016, for a Reddit comment that I eventually turned into a... uh, first-time viewer's guide, I said, As the characters become more complex, we feel that we can endlessly explore them, too. They aren't just the eccentric archetypes we might have initially suspected, in both senses of the word. The Audrey Ben scene is particularly good for this. Their scene together a few episodes earlier did a good job establishing the template for their relationship, but here they are both more multidimensional. And the placement of Lara's picture on the table and her mystery as a motivation for Audrey, both openly and surreptitiously, remind us that her mystery exists not only to lead us to her secrets, but to help illustrate all the other townspeople as well. I'm curious, for those watching for the first time, how do you feel the show has changed, or do you, in just five episodes? Did you foresee it heading in this direction, tonally, narratively, otherwise, since the pilot, or are you surprised at where it is at right now? Has your perception of any of the characters or situations changed? Who and what storyline are you most and least invested in right now? And if you had to guess, where do you think this story and characters might be in another five episodes? Those questions were asked several years ago, but they go for anybody listening to this now too. Please tell me what you think. And right now we're going to move on to the section which, uh, as always, does not contain any plot spoilers, but does talk about the overall shape of the show, some things that were added later, like these introductions, and uh, also offers my ranking of the episode. So it lets you know where I think it fits in in the overall scheme. In 2015, I ranked this episode number 10 on my list for Tumblr. And I wrote, Entering my top 10, we reach a group of episodes that are close to flawless, with one minor and one major exception, whose tremendous strengths tend to balance its frustrations. This doesn't mean that all of these excellent episodes are equal. On the contrary, my ranking came fast and easy, and I haven't budged since. But it's a matter of escalating heights rather than diminishing lows. And episode 4 is a perfect fit for the 10 spot. It lacks the major moments of the rest of season one, but its vibe is perfectly pitched between mellow, relaxed immersion and atmosphere and the escalating excitement of an investigation discovering new clues, characters, and locations. At the end of this episode, we get a next time preview. And uh, in this case, it it shows Cooper finding a copy of Flesh World, Jacoby saying Laura wanted to corrupt people because that's how she felt herself, and the log lady talking, uh, telling the police about hearing screams. Speaking of the Log Lady, the Log Lady intro for this episode, recorded several years later for the Bravo re-airing, she talks about, uh, she says, even the ones who laugh are sometimes caught without an answer. She also says, these creatures who introduce themselves, but we swear we have met them sometime before, somewhere before. And she talks about, uh, she asks what you see in a mirror, she talks about dreams versus nightmare, being introduced against your will to something. And seeing smoke and smelling fire, she asks, are they mirrors? And the battle is, says the battle is drawing nigh. This is one of the more cryptic Log Lady intros so far. Probably not the most 
cryptic we'll find overall, but there's definitely a sense of this. Uh, it touches on a sense of like deja vu and the uncanny that is suggested in Gerard's relationship to Mike. This idea that you're seeing somebody and you know them from a dream, but they're not that person. And also the question, you know, it's an interesting question. What do you see in a mirror? Are they mirrors? Are, are these things you're looking at actually mirrors of yourself? And kind of asking, I think, in a way, if Cooper's dream is a reflection of him or if it's sort of a gateway to something else. Uh, among other things it may be asking. There's obviously an element that Lynch found fascinating in the story, which I don't think he contributed to that much. Supposedly him and Frost spoke on the phone and shaped the overall arc of season one, but he's not only doesn't have any screenwriting credits on this one or the previous one, he's also just not present on set or in quote unquote the writer's room, which there wasn't really a writer's room, but you know, they would the writers would come in and talk to the to Frost and he'd go over stuff with him like and stuff like that. But nonetheless for that separation, Lynch seems fascinated by this concept. Here's some speculation from the Usenet board about a popular theory among fans. Written in 1990, the user knew no more about the series than you do if you're a new viewer, so there are no spoilers here. But here's what Tom Neff wrote. The concept being explored is that Laura and Maddie have switched places. So it's actually Maddie who died and Laura's impersonating her. And here's how the, his, he proceeds with this theory. It would make no sense for Albert to miss hair dye or bleach. Remember, he was doing fiber analysis. He would have mentioned it. However, nobody is checking Madeline's hair, are they? She could have spent the last year as a blonde, and who'd know? I don't give much credence to the idea of a bleached Madeline lying on the slab being misidentified as Laura. But I am kind of intrigued at the thought of Madeline impersonating her during the past year. It might explain why, quote, Laura's changed, why she was involved with so many different guys, a number of things. I don't know. So that's it for Season 1, Episode 6 coverage. Now we're going to preview the first minute playing a clip of the audio and then a description of what we see to, to begin the next episode. Diane, it is 4.28 a.m. I have just been woken up by the most god-awful racket which you can probably hear over the sound of my voice. Can you hear that? Up until this moment, I've experienced nothing at the Great Northern Hotel but the most pleasant, courteous service imaginable. However, it just goes to prove the point that once a traveler leaves his home, he loses almost 100% of his ability to control his environment. Diane, I was wondering if you could overnight express to me two pair of those ear pillow silicone earplugs which I used on my last trip to New York. Naturally, I didn't bring them with me on this trip. There's no fade up this time, just a cut from black to a semi-abstract shape bristles blocking something orange. For a split second, the bristles appear distinct from one another in soft focus, but we quickly rack focus to the orange background. The bristles, likely belonging to a pine or fir tree branch, turn into a blurred, eventually almost invisible screen across the bottom left diagonal third of the image, while the orange blob sharpens into a vivid full moon, craters and canyons clearly visible against the stark black backdrop of the night sky. There is a slight shudder as the operator finishes the rack focus, and we cut to lightly bellowing curtains in front of an open window and pan across a very dark room before landing on a familiar bedside tabletop, presumably illuminated in an island of moonlight filtered through the curtains. Adorned with a gun and a holster, 
a handsome old-style hardcover of great expectations, a few objects mostly hidden in shadow, and a wristwatch atop the book, which Cooper's hand reaches out to hold up and check before moving to his tape recorder and switching it on as he, and the camera following his hand in a medium close-up, lifts the tape recorder to his mouth. Sitting up and leaning forward in bed in a white undershirt lit by the curtained moon, he begins to speak. The camera dollies back to create a medium shot as he raises the recorder toward his room ceiling so that Diane can hear the racket herself. The camera continues to glide around one of the bed posts, gradually settling into a straight-on medium wide of Cooper in bed, the deer's paw rack with the rifle visible above his head. Here the shot rests as Cooper asks for his earplugs, and our minute ends just as he's explaining why he didn't think he'd need them. Tomorrow we begin... Season 1, Episode 6, Cooper's Dreams, also known as Episode 5, Fifth Since the Pilot. This is a really good episode, really kind of at the heart of Season 1. It's written by Mark Frost, the first one written by him alone. So we'll see you tomorrow for that episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And you can become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. See you tomorrow.